You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So according to a recent survey, The average person complains three times a day. Now, that got me thinking, what does three times a day mean? Like all morning, all afternoon, and all night? But but basically, people admitted there's at least three times a day that they complain. Uh, Less than half of the majority surveyed said they don't think it's possible for them to go one whole day without a complaint. So what are the things that they are complaining about? So I'll throw that question out to you. What what do you think is on people's radar screen that they tend to complain about? What? Yep, very good. Yeah, very good. Weather, another one people complain about. Politics, yeah. Uh, If you've been driving in your car and you need to stop, you might complain about gas prices, utility prices. Now, I find it very interesting. All of us knew what are those things people are complaining about? Why? Because we complain about the same things, right? So we have a couple of weeks before Thanksgiving. And I thought it would be good to do a short series on what does it mean to be thankful? And, And how can we, even as believers, move from being grumblers to being grateful? Uh, so I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, at first, this might seem an unusual text to pick to talk about Thanksgiving. Uh, but to sort of set up the context of this, in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 through 22, uh, Paul's writing to a group of believers in Corinth. And, and as he's writing to them, notice in verse 14, just the first four words, Therefore, my dear friends. Uh, If you're familiar with the letter of Corinthians, Paul has a lot of things to say to this body of believers. Uh, It's almost like they're a conglomeration of of spiritual misfits. I mean, they have their issues, uh, and Paul has to deal with some of those. But we must never forget Paul's love for these believers as he's addressing these things. And that phrase, you know, my dear friends, literally is my, my beloved ones. Uh, the ones that I have a tremendous amount of affection for. So that's an important point to keep in mind. The other is chapters 7 through 14 
of 1 Corinthians are Paul addressing many of the questions and concerns that he has or that have also been relayed to him where they've sought Paul's counsel on it. And so you're going to find a series of things dealing with, as we see here in chapter 10, uh, this issue of Christians attending pagan festivals. It may be something we might have a little harder time associating with today, but I think there are parallels that we can look at. Uh, then later he's going to talk about worship, some questions they have about what does appropriate worship look like? Uh, what about spiritual gifts in worship? So it's a very practical hands-on section, chapter 7 through 14. But that brings us to the passage we want to look at today, which ties into an analogy to the Lord's Supper. And that is a, a question that was very relevant for, for many living in Corinth, is, is it right or wrong for a believer to attend a different, like, pagan festival or dinner? Uh, now, you want to sort of keep the context in this. Corinth had lots of trade guilds. So I almost think of, like, trade unions. To be a part of those unions and, and to make a living often meant you had to associate and attend some of the functions that they had. So you want business, you want a network. Well, you're going to have to kind of network with these different groups, which typically were very pagan-oriented. And so the question naturally came up for Paul is they were saying, is, is this right or wrong? Like, like, should we avoid these things? How, how does that fit in with our testimony and our witness? So in order to answer that question, Paul actually presents a theology of the Lord's Supper. Which is somewhat interesting because if you're in 1 Corinthians, you know we often go to 1 Corinthians 11 for instruction about the Lord's Supper. And that's appropriate because we'll reference that. But we often bypass this section in chapter 10 that is as rich in kind of a theological understanding of, of what is the Lord's Supper. So I hope to bring out three direct principles out of this to help all of us not only know what it means to be thankful, but in particular, if we're going to move from grumblers to being grateful, the place that should start is at the Lord's Supper when we have communion. So look at me at verses 14 through 16. And communion coming before the table of the Lord should be a time to celebrate the believer's identity in Christ. So look what Paul says there. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? So immediately we hear language. Paul's talking about this new identity that we have in Christ, that, that we're celebrating that. And I think communion, the Lord's table, is a solemn time. It, it does require some careful thought, examination. But I think sometimes we lose sight of it's actually a celebration. This isn't to be a tedious sort of mournful sort of act. It's, it's supposed to celebrate, as Paul says here, he says to these believers wrestling with this meal, talks about you need to flee idolatry. So if you think about it, idolatry is basically placing anyone or anything above your relationship with God. 
So you either have idolatry or you have what would be true worship of God. Which brings us back to who are we now in Christ? That, that everything in our life should be oriented around our relationship with God. Now, we know that's a continual struggle, but, but that is our desire. That is the priority in our life. And notice how, how Paul sort of explains this in verse 16. He keeps repeating the word participation. Notice as he says there, uh, the cup of thanksgiving, which we give thanks, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? And then is not the bread participation in the body of Christ? Now, Paul isn't teaching what you might be familiar with if you know someone who's a Roman Catholic or Catholic doctrine. He's not saying the bread and the blood are the actual blood of Christ. Notice he says it's participation in. And participation is that word that we get the term koinonia from. So we often think of, in church, uh, fellowship. But probably too many times for many Christians, fellowship simply means food food and conversation. There's nothing wrong with food and conversation, but that's not really all fellowship should be. So when Paul refers to participation here, he is emphasizing fellowship, but more partnership. Our association now in Jesus Christ is being celebrated in the Lord's Supper. In other words, all of us have a, a new identity in Christ. And that's something that we should think about at the Lord's table. Notice as well as he emphasizes here, as we'll see, uh, the cup of thanksgiving. You know, why, why does he keep talking about thanksgiving and giving thanks? Well, he's setting all this in perspective of the gift of salvation. Just go back in 1 Corinthians to chapter 6. And if you look at 1 Corinthians 6, Paul already talked to them, as he did really in the very beginning of the letter, about who they are in Christ. And I think this is vital to understand Paul's love for them, his desire to want to see them grow in Christ, but also to address sin in their life, but to remind them if they're in Christ, they do have a new identity. So if you look at 1 Corinthians 6, listen to verses 9 through 11. And imagine a congregation hearing this letter read to them. And you get to this part, beginning at verse 9 of chapter 6. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul says, you know what you were before you acknowledge Christ. Communion is reminding you not to dwell on what you were, but in light of that, think of now who you are in Christ. And I'm sure if we dug into the personal background of each of us, we would say, yep, definitely some of those things that describes that was our life. We, we lived for ourselves. We were idolaters. 
we, we didn't have a wooden statue we carved out and put up, but we, we placed everything else above our walk with you. And so how important it is to be reminded of our new identity. And if you took the time to just kind of go through 1 Corinthians, you find Paul many different times is reminding them not where you are, but who you are in Christ. Where he calls them saints, where he says to them, you're a new creation in Christ. And this is probably one of those times, even though I know I'm addressing really those who know Christ, where, where we need to preach the gospel to ourselves and remind ourselves that good news is not just for those who don't know Christ. It, it's also for us. It's to remind us of our new identity in Jesus Christ. So when we hold the bread and the cup, it's a, it's a visual reminder, a picture to us. Your new identity is now you love the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's where your devotion is directed. But out of that, Paul will also remind us that we need to thoughtfully reflect on the cost of that new identity. It's great to rejoice in that, and we should. But we also need to pause and realize, how, how did that transaction happen? And so notice again in verse 16 of our text, there where Paul writes, about the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks is not a participation in the blood of Christ and is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ. So rhetorical questions that have an obvious answer that we know. Notice how he refers to this, the cup of thanksgiving, we give thanks. So that word is the root for our word, eulogy. And if you've ever been to a memorial service, a funeral service, uh, you, you almost expect that people are going to speak well of the person that it's in honor of. They're giving a eulogy. So Paul says that that's what Thanksgiving is. You're speaking well of what God has done for you in Christ. You're, you're remembering the cost of this new identity. So I think often we, we rightfully focus on Christ's death and resurrection, which is the cost. But we also must remember it's a gift. Uh, I think all of us enjoy getting gifts. I can't wait till Tim gives me his Christmas gift for me. And I'm already thinking about it. Uh, you know, we, we like getting gifts. Well, what greater gift could there be then as Paul talks about, you know, the, the gift of salvation, that there's nothing else that exceeds that. And we should be thinking of that when we consider our new identity in Christ. And you have Paul speak of the bread and the cup. Uh, you know, the cup often in the scriptures is one, a symbol of suffering, you know, in, enduring something. So we think of Christ's death, his, his humiliation throughout his entire life that culminates at the cross. In Luke's gospel, he talks about at one point before Christ institutes the supper, he took the cup. And so you may be thinking, wait a minute, we often think of the bread and the cup. Why is he talking about a cup before he even mentions the bread? Well, he's referring to the third cup in the cup of Passover, which is actually called the cup of thanksgiving 
which has a specific prayer tied to it, giving thanks to God for his deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. So you have built into not just Passover, but built into the Lord's Supper, this thought of deliverance. So as we have the opportunity now soon to immediately apply what we're learning, it would be, all right, for me to celebrate when I have the cup and the bread, to celebrate my new identity in Christ. Not, not, I'm not asking you, how do you feel at the moment? Because you may not feel at all like Paul's describing. But that's why it's written down for us. Because it's not based on how you're feeling. It's based on an objective truth, an objective reality. But let's look a little further here in verse 16, at the very end of that verse, and then into verse 17, that the Lord's table is a time to celebrate the believer's unity because of Jesus Christ. And so notice the end of verse 16. Once again, uh, we break a participation in the body of Christ with the bread because there is one loaf. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Now, all of you are astute enough to know if you're reading a scripture verse and the same word keeps popping up, it's got to be important. So Paul is clearly emphasizing to a church that we already know has a number of different factions in it, saying to them, in Christ, you're to celebrate at the Lord's table your unity in Christ. And I can't think of a day and an age in which probably there is more confusion over, not just within the church, what do you unite around and what do you divide over? So if you followed a little bit what's going on with the Methodist denomination, they're, they're basically facing a gigantic split because some are saying we should embrace same-sex relationships, marriages, bless them in the church. And there's others saying that's not at all biblical. And so we do need wisdom. What do you divide over? Because there clearly are things we have to divide over. But in this case, Paul is emphasizing in communion, we're celebrating our unity in Christ. And notice this phrase, breaking of bread. Uh, so you may recall it from Acts 2, where it talks about the early Christian community uh, met together in the homes of one another, and they broke bread. Uh, it is possible that that could refer to simply a meal, that, that they shared meals together. They spent time together. Uh, it could possibly include also they had communion together, you know, the bread and the cup. Uh, what's very interesting in church history, traditionally, the celebration of the Lord's Supper took place on Sunday evening. So you'd have your Sunday morning worship service. Then Sunday evening, you'd have a second worship service. And at the Sunday evening service, you would have communion at that service. And, and also, typically, uh, around the second century, it then got moved to the first service. So in other words, the morning, which is probably what most of us are used to. Uh, but, but along the way, one of the difficulties came into place is, what about abuses with the Lord's Supper? And, and we know there were some problems in Corinth where this sort of love feast they had before the Lord's Supper, which is basically a, 
like a potluck supper on steroids, you know, like everybody brings something, everybody eats, that that, that was becoming a problem because it was causing increased division over who brought the best dish, you know, what if you're too poor and you couldn't bring anything, you know, were you looked down upon because you didn't bring the right food, uh, that it actually became a problem. And so we see that anytime we think of something the church does, if it is important and commanded by scripture, we can expect Satan to want to twist and dilute and pervert that. And so we need to guard this concept that in the Lord's Supper, yes, we are first and foremost celebrating our new identity, but then it's a visual reminder to us of our unity in Christ that comes out of that identity. And so one of the things I've referenced here, we, we use one loaf of bread. Not, not because that's better than a wafer or something like that, but, but to help us capture that, that symbolism, that picture, that, that there's one loaf. Why? Because we're one body of Christ. We're, we're all different personalities. We may have different convictions on some issues that are not related to salvation, but, but we're one in Christ. And that's exactly what he emphasizes here. If you turn the page to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I mentioned often in communion, we go to 1 Corinthians 11, a very direct passage. If you look beginning at like verse 23, you have Paul's instructions he received uh, that are God's word, guidelines for us. But notice what verses 24 through 26 say. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, have you ever stopped to think about why do we take it all at the same time? Like Jesus prays, then he distributes it. And the assumption is the picture, they're going to get it. And then they will all do this simultaneously. You know, is, is that just a formality? You know, maybe if the service was running late, we could save time. Just drink this as soon as you get it. You know, get it, eat it, drink it, and you're out of here. Well, there is something significant about doing it together. It's a reminder we're one in Christ. Not, not one of us is more holy than another. It's not like I take the elements and first something happens when I hold them and then I give them out to you and now they have some kind of vested power or authority. No, we, we partake together. I eat at the same time as you eat. We drink the same time together. There, there's a very, again, visual reminder to us in that very act that we are one body together. We were talking in the adult class about ordinances or sacraments. You know, what, what commands has God given the church that they are to do until his return? And you probably know the two in Scripture are baptism and the Lord's Supper. What do they both have in common? They're public and corporate acts. You don't get baptized in private. You know, you don't 
go home and say, well, I'll have communion my own way in my own room. It, it's intended to be done before others. And it is an opportunity we're affirming before God who sees everything. But we're saying before one another, we're, we're, we're not embarrassed about our faith in Christ. And, and we expect that if you see I'm not walking like I should, you, you'll speak to me. You'll, you'll hold me accountable. And so you notice in this discussion here that Paul naturally shifts from, well, what about attending pagan festivals, these pagan trade guilds? You know, is that okay or not? He, he moves right from that into, well, wait, if you do offerings and sacrifices, does that imply worship? And his point is yes. So the Lord's Supper is is not, and I, I know we all know this, but we all have to guard our hearts against this. It, it's not just something we do. It's not just something that potentially makes that first Sunday of the month service five or ten minutes longer. You know, it, it's worship. That, that's how we should see it. This is now another opportunity for me to worship for what God has done for me in Christ, for my new identity, for how he has united me together with the body of Christ that I am a part a part of. And there is only one body of Christ, although it exists in many different local churches. So for our friends, Dwight and Carla, uh, they go to a different church, but, but they know Christ. And they're a part of the body of Christ. Even though we don't do anything with that church, they are in the body of Christ. Just like when they go home and they report this was like the best service they've ever been to, you know, they can say, we were in the body of Christ and we met with them in Canaan and we worshiped. So what a reminder in a day of factualization where, where everyone is split and specialized that, that Paul's going back to, you know, communion is a, a visual reminder to us of this spiritual reality. But although we've talked about celebration and communion, we, we can't ignore that it is an opportunity to, to give thanks to God, but, but also an opportunity to renew our calling in Christ Jesus. And, and notice in verses 21 and 22 how Paul sort of now approaches this renewed calling. Because no matter how long you've known the Lord, uh, we get spiritually complacent. Uh, we can certainly drift off into sins. So even though Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 said, you, you used to be like this, but now you've been washed, he's also acknowledging there may be some that are re hearing this read who are still struggling with some of those sins. They, they don't want to do it, and, and they wrestle with it, and they are a believer, but, but they stumble, they fall. So, so what about them when it comes to the Lord's table? Well, notice verse 21. He goes on and says, You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than him? Now notice how clearly Paul says, these two realities cannot coexist together. 
they, they just cannot. There, there's a law in, of logic uh, that you can often use when you're talking to people. Um, is, is simply this, and it might sound a little confusing, but it makes sense. It's the law of non-contradiction. A cannot be A and non-A at the same time. So in other words, you can't claim a reality of one thing and claim an opposite reality of the other and say that they're both correct. So Paul brings this up and he says, you know, you, you can't offer sacrifices, go through motions at these pagan things and say it means nothing to you because you're, you're conveying worship. And so in the Lord's table, you are conveying worship. And it's got to be an either or. Now, I love how Paul traces this back, not to, if you don't do that, I'm going to be really disappointed. You know, sometimes we, we want to so please, whether it be our pastor, others in our life, small group leaders, that, that we're thinking, well, I want to please them. I, I want them to be, to think best of me. Paul doesn't say anything about how they think of him. Notice what he says in that verse. What is the nature of God? God is a jealous God. So he demands and wants all of our worship, all of our love. He, he's not willing to compromise. I mean, we, we love the world, the word today, you know, negotiating, collaborating. God doesn't collaborate. He doesn't negotiate. He says, this is who I am. This is what I demand. And so kind of think of that aspect that the Lord is jealous. He's jealous for you and me who belong to him. Now, unlike our jealousy, which is often sinful because it's motivated by thinking something belongs to us when it really doesn't, but God owns everything. Everything is his. So he has every right to say, I don't want to see anything. Pull those who have confessed me as Lord and Savior away from me. And so in communion, now this is the opportunity where God gets our attention. Maybe in a way that, that we kind of prevent that through other distractions during the week. But, but he has it now. And notice, in addition to that, the Lord's table can be a place where your relationship with Christ is restored. Because you notice in verse, the next chapter, in verses 29 through 32, in 1 Corinthians 11, you have these familiar words, for anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Paul says communion is a mini judgment seat for the believer in Christ. It's an opportunity for him to refine you, to, to show you things in your life that maybe are not right to encourage you with the things that are right, that you're building upon and improving on by his grace. I think one of the most neglected verses probably related to the Lord's Supper is not just the 1 Corinthians 10, but, but the passage we just read, this is why many among you are sick and some have died. 
Now, he clearly isn't saying all sickness is a result of, you know, not doing the Lord's Supper in a meaningful way. But he is saying there are cases where it is tied to God's judgment. And so what a picture for us in a world where it is so easy to complain. And not only is it easy, it's natural. Like, like we're sinful. We, we complain. To kind of look at the Lord's Supper as here's an opportunity I get every month at least to refocus, to hopefully move from being someone who grumbles and complains to someone who is so grateful for the gift of salvation and to who I am in Christ and who my brothers and sisters are in Christ as well. Let me pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word that speaks. And I pray as we transition and move into worshiping you through the Lord's Supper, uh, that we would think hard and seriously about each aspect of what we've talked about. Lord, that we would leave a people renewed in our faith that might first take conviction, that might first require some, some deep thinking in our own hearts about where we are in our relationship with you. But Lord, you do this because you are a jealous God, because you love us. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen. So as we think of Paul's instructions, he very carefully says, you know, for anyone who's not a believer, uh, the Lord's Supper should simply be passed by. You don't understand what it's doing. You don't understand. You don't agree with what it's proclaiming. You're, you're going to open yourself to greater judgment. But then the other side of that, for those of us who do profess Christ, is, is the warning we need to do this correctly. There, there isn't a magical formula, but it means you know your heart and you know where you stand with God. And, and you need to weigh that and talk to God about it but before you, you know, are reminded that he died for your sins, before you're reminded of his blood that was shed. Uh, and all of this is a celebration of the best is yet to come when, when we will join with Christ in the celebration of the ultimate Lord's Supper.